Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well then, you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is May 11th, 2021, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. As we do every time we do this, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? Good to be back recording, Neil. You're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I guess we got those going around, and pretty yes. soon uh, the, uh, the the 12 and 13-year-olds in my house will get vaccinated. Just imagine that. As always, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about in this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together here with my team at Hedgeye Risk Management, including Christian here. You can Google it. Among other things, you'll be able to get our newswire. You're able to get most of our black books. You can watch the show on COVID-19, which actually, for understandable reasons, we haven't done for a while but we do do uh, also, we have had a number of black books out, and we do uh, uh, special interviews with guests. So let's get into today's podcast. As always, we have a lot to talk about the continuing bull market, although we haven't really seen it over the last couple of days, but it's kind of going on there. That's certainly the trend since our last podcast. I think we want to say something about Biden's new offensive in policy, which is the uh, infrastructure package. And sort of, we, we actually did a show on that, I think, I can't remember, a, a couple of episodes ago. Right. And we may have a, a couple of things to say briefly about things abroad. We have two news wires that we want to cover, a big subject in the demography world, a big issue, and this is the uh, release of China's 2020 census. So, you know, prepared to dive deep here into that. People sometimes, you know, comment, Jay Neal, you know, when do you really do real demography? Well, so you can get your work boots and your work gloves on, you know, because we'll be <laughs> plunging into that. We actually did two pieces on it. We did it up front when they had delayed the results. Now they actually have preliminary results out. We'll talk about those. Actually, I think we anticipated the results very accurately, didn't we, uh, Christian? I think we, we right on the nose. We kind of nailed it, and and finally we have sort of a thought piece, uh, which I issued. Someone asked me, Neil, uh, are we going to have another Roaring Twenties? Yeah, think about it, Roaring Twenties. You know, so and my answer was another Roaring Twenties, not a chance. That is not in our immediate future. So. We'll go through and explain why, and that'll be sort of a more impressionistic thing, and we'll end with that. You know, just in terms of uh, where we are, I guess we should really start with your market news and indicators, and then we'll, you know, kind of try to wrap that up pretty quickly. So why don't, you, why don't you go ahead? All right, Neil. Well, it's been 15 trading days since our last podcast, and the S&P 100 has not moved much. It is up 0.6% since then. 
the global Dow, that's up 3.3%, and the VIX closed yesterday at 1966 well, it, it moved a lot. It just didn't end up anywhere right. different. <laughs> it kind of went up and then it came down. Uh, and where's the VIX now? Uh, 19.66. So a little bit above what we were seeing a few weeks ago. Right, right. Well, yeah, a lot of motion lately. And, you know, obviously on the downside, it's going to be higher than it is on the upside. Right. Um, Okay, so what about indicators? I know it's been a while, so we probably have a few. Maybe you can give us the highlights. Yeah, I'll give us the highlights. We got GDP for Q1. That grew at 6.4% annualized, slightly better than expected. Then the other really big piece of news everyone was talking about was the non-farm payroll for April. The U.S. only added 266,000 jobs, Neil. This was way below expectations of 978,000 jobs. I don't know if you have any thoughts on why was the uh, consensus and the actual reading so much different, Neil? Well, look, I mean, we've written about it. Uh, I think what was on everyone's mind is the fact that there is a supply constraint uh, namely, particularly when it comes to non-college jobs, uh, jobs at lower wage and earnings levels, the combination of people fearing to go back to jobs which involve a lot of interaction with, with customers, particularly younger people who haven't had their vaccines yet, plus the impact of an extra, you know, three hundred dollars, you know, on their weekly uh, uh, unemployment comp, which has been extended, you know, combined with. Um, the eviction moratorium, and a lot of the other things. I, I think it's the opinion. I don't think this is a minority opinion. I think it's a majority right. opinion. This acts as a, a constraint. The big sign of that, which I think to me is sort of justifies that assessment, is the huge gap we saw between the increase in jobs by people with four-year college degrees, which went up really right. strongly, right? And almost no growth among non-college workers. And to me, that's it. I mean, that really nails it. We also saw as corroborating evidence, the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Businesses, in their last report, which was, you know, I think it stands fairly positive. I think it was down slightly from the previous month. Wasn't that April that it came out? A record share, record, going back to 1970s, right, when they started doing this, right? A record share of small business owners and managers uh, reported that they just couldn't hire people. They can't find people. In other words, now nah, you can always say, I mean, my response to that is, well, you know, just pay them more. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know they don't, you don't hire them. I mean, it's supply and demand, right? The problem, though, is that they might even be offering wages that are, you know, substantially above uh, what anyone paid before, 20, 30, 40% above. They still can't get anyone. So to me, that is a sign that there's a supply constraint. This gets kind of political, right? I mean, the Biden administration doesn't really want to talk about that. Uh, Biden sort of sloughed it off. You remember he sort of said, well, you know, it's just one month. And uh, it just shows that the problem is more serious than we thought. You know, in a way, Biden is sort of feeding off the continuing crisis, right? I mean, well, it just shows you what a big problem we have. You know, this isn't going to be solved overnight. You know, we need these subsidies to still go out. The Republicans, on the other hand, and I think this is the mood, obviously, in the the House. But I mean, who cares about the House, right? <laughs> the Republicans, the Republicans in the House don't matter. It's in the Senate where they matter. And I think on both sides, it's a much different resistance now 
because I think a lot of people are sensing that this could be, you know, the beginning of a feeling of sort of limitations on what, uh, you know, on the on the kind of open ended subsidy approach. Now, that is not going to be as that's going to be extended until September. Is that right? Right. I think it's September. 9th. Um, so it's not like it's just about to go away. That's that's a long time. Uh, we did have a federal judge throw out the uh, the CDC's eviction moratorium, but you know that's going to go to appeals and um, who knows? Uh, you know, in other words, nothing's going to happen soon on that. The law moves slowly, and arguably, I would say, the CDC, you know, ought to have extraordinary powers. Uh, maybe I'm a minority here, but I think in emergencies, uh, government agencies should have these powers. Uh, frankly, I think government agencies should have the power to compel people to get vaccinated. But, you know, everyone calls me a Yahoo, but that's kind of where I am. And by the way, that was that is totally constitutional. That was confirmed back in, hmm, it was a Massachusetts case back in 1906. Massachusetts had a law that compelled people to get a smallpox vaccination. Believe me, yeah, you think COVID is bad. <laughs> uh, you know, we used to get smallpox. That's uh, been totally eradicated, right? But they had a law requiring people. Uh, that went to Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, you know, and things that have to do with the public health and safety when you're talking about life and death, yes, absolutely, government has the right to do that. Well, we're kind of... We're kind of softer stuff today. I know that everyone thinks that um, the courts allow governments to do a lot more today. Some people would say a lot less. But I, but I think that one would be very, you know, given stare decisis, it would be very difficult for courts to actually revise that. I don't know. That's kind of where I am on that. Anyway, that's that's where we are. In terms of how the economy is doing, we are still in hedge-eye terminology in quad two. That's accelerating inflation, accelerating output. The COVID situation continues to improve as our you know vaccination rate continues to improve. Seven-day cases, we're now down to 40,000. Seven-day deaths average is now just under 650. It's kind of a longer tail than I think anyone's expecting, partly due to variants and all the rest. But we just see, you know, continuing signs of the stimulus, the combined stimulus of monetary policy and fiscal policy, uh, 10-year tips. So that really is the real interest rate. That's down to minus 0.89%, right? So we're back. It's actually been going back down again. So policy is becoming, recently becoming more stimulative. You know, when we are down to like minus 0.9 or minus 1%, effective interest rates, uh, you know, on the 10 year. Yeah, that's stimulative. That, that means, <laughs> you know, you're borrowing, uh, if you can borrow at the treasury rate, you're paying back less in real debt. You're expected to pay back less in real dollars every year. The 10 year break even is up, right? So it's becoming more stimulative on the one hand. On the other end, the 10 year break even, what everyone expects the inflation rate to be for the next 10 years is up now at 2.54. Once that goes to about 2.65, so imagine about 10 more basis points, we're higher than we've been since before the GFC. You have to go back to like 2004. And once it goes up to, you know, 2.75 or 2.8, that's as high as it's ever been in the history of, uh, 
of the recent index bonds uh, since they were, I don't know, started to reissue them in what, 2002 or 1999, I can't remember, but sometime around there. Credit spreads remain low, commodity prices are trending up, and the dollar after you know, going up for a while is now the last month going down. So I, I think we just have more of the same. Uh, why is the market down the past, you know, two and a half days? It looks like now it's going to be a third day. I don't know. This is uh, technicals. You know, as people would say, well, you know, the, the, the spy was overbought. Don't you love that explanation? <laughs> it was overbought. It was due for it. always makes you sound so wise in retrospect. So that's it. Uh, maybe is there anything else you'd like to comment on either here or around the world? Uh, I'll just talk about a couple of PMIs here from the U.S. These are from Market. They got their final April readings. Uh, manufacturing came in at 60.5. That's their highest reading ever since they began doing this indicator in 2007. And for services, it came in at 64.7 for April. So looking pretty good there. Wow, then that is good. Abroad, I'll just do I'll just do the Eurozone, also their market PMIs. Manufacturing came in at 62.9. That's its highest reading since 1997. And services came in at 50.5, and that's its first growth since August. Wow. So... Yeah. So maybe they have something to invest in again in their economy that would uh, maybe explain their hesitance about right. purchasing dollars. Maybe they have something, you know, at home that they can spend on. All right. What else have you got? Oh, that's all I got for indicators. Okay. So do you want to talk? Um, I know before we get to our, you know, we have a lot to talk about with regard to, you know, news wires. Um and demography. But is there anything uh, abroad you want to you want to mention? Yes, I do have a few news stories here, short and sweet. But uh, Brazil, Bolsonaro, he is on the hot seat once again, Neil. He is now under a Senate investigation for his handling of the coronavirus. He is being accused of threatening governors and mayors about their reopening policies. And while this investigation, you know, technically nothing will come of it, it's really being used to gather evidence for a possible impeachment trial. And people are saying Bolsonaro's support seems to be wavering even in his base because their COVID situation is still not great. Deaths are slightly coming down, but cases are pretty much a flat line, about 60,000 a day if you do seven-day average. Yeah, wow. Look, uh, Brazil's a mess, and I think his his... Approval ratings have to be way down by now, right? Right, they are going down. Well, bring back Lula, right? I mean, yeah. he's tanned, rested, and ready to go. I, I think he's el- by the courts. He's eligible again legally, so we're, we'll go back to a um, you know seventy-something populist, uh, a legend in the old days. Bring him back. Uh, that'll, be, that'll be an interesting shift. No, this yeah. has been very un- uh, a very unpleasant experience for Brazil. Just. By any definition, you'd have to just say that was is the most one of the most badly, you know, mismanaged situations in the world right. in terms of just what you don't want to do, right? And they also had some bad luck, obviously, on the variant situation with the P one. What else have you got? All right, I got one more story here for you. It's the EU and India have announced that they will launch trade talks. Now they have 
tried this twice before in the past. This was in 2007 and 2013, and it always always failed over something little. I think the last time it was about car manufacturing. But with growing tensions with China, you know, India and the EU, they're both looking for other places they can have trade deals. Remember, we had talked about that uh, investment deal with the EU and China, and there's more speculation that that might fall apart. Uh, and it looks like they're both really willing to negotiate. The biggest contention at the moment is that India is really pushing for these uh, vaccine patents to be waived, but the EU does not want to do that. So that's what analysts are saying is their biggest hurdle. Yeah, well, it's probably Germany that doesn't want to do that, right? right. Um, I don't yeah, think, Angela uh, Merkel yeah, does not yeah. want that. So, yeah, look, it's got to be good for Euro. And, and by the way, by doing that, they, if they do want to go back to China, they have more bargaining pressure. So, yeah, they have an interest in doing that. I'd be really interested in, in uh, figuring out what um, Boris Johnson is going to do with India. Uh, now he's free to, like, broker his own deal, right? I mean, right. India is, a, is an ancient, uh, I shouldn't say ancient, but it's a uh, the traditional trading partner of Britain. Uh, and I should say that um, Bojo is off a great victory. They had a by-election in a northern district uh, where I believe the the Tory won again, another one of these very traditionally labor old manufacturing districts and just got a huge victory, just completely cleaned up. Right. At the same time, there is bad news for for the Tories. The um, you know they continue to have this problem with Northern Ireland. They're losing their true blue uh, supporters there, and 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 obviously in Scotland. So on the periphery. But meanwhile, the Conservative Party is becoming increasingly a traditionalist English party. <laughs> Let's just talk about it, right? We're back to our cultural center again, right? Let's forget Britain. Let's just talk about England, right? <laughs> so right. they're becoming an English party. And they are getting back all these older labor voters, right? And the labor voters are trying to decide between a really split labor movement now, which you got, you know, all the younger ones, they're sort of uh, pro- Euro, they're you know they're kind of green. They they're very they're a little bit more internationalist and so on. And, and these guys just think, yeah, if it's a choice between that and tradition and old England, you know, let's let's go back to that. This is really a much an era of trial for uh, labor, even even with this new um, labor leader. You know, they got rid of the older one that that clearly was a liability for them. But they've they've got their work cut out for them, and I think we're going to see we're going to see where that goes. So, well, excellent. I think it's time we. What do you say we dive into demography? All right, all right. So, uh, this actually is uh, two stories I came up with. The first story uh, we did before uh, the announcement of what China's twenty twenty census would be. And there was a, this was actually something, you know, approaching a geopolitical incident. But this was a story that was run by the Financial Times about, oh, about 10 days ago that actually rumored that China had uh, delayed the uh, reporting of the bottom line results on its 2020 census for over a month. And the whispering was, is that the population was actually recording a decline 
right? And that they couldn't face it, right? It was such a loss of face, right? That they didn't know what to do. And and they claimed to have inside sources on that, right? Uh, well, you know, after the story came out, it, immediately there was, uh, you know, responses. Uh, there was the uh, the Global Times, which is the Communist Party-directed newspaper, uh, reporting that a numerical drop in 2020 was unlikely. And if it did occur, it'd be a statistical blip, you know, just immediately defensiveness. Although it also added that a decline actually might be likely in 2021 for reasons we might get to later. Obviously, the biggest fertility blow is going to hit in 2021. Uh, 2020 looks bad enough in China for births. And a day after that, the NBS, that's the National Bureau for Statistics in China, issued a one-sentence announcement on its website, only saying one thing, just one sentence, that China's population did indeed increase in 2020 over 2019, you know, just, <laughs> just responding to this, uh, this Western rumor, uh, but no other clarification than that. So what, what's the background here? The, the, the background is this. In January of last year, the People's Republic proudly announced that China's population had just pushed barely over 1.4 billion. It was like 1.400, I don't know, 1.401, something like that. So it was, a, you know, 1 million, right, uh, for the first time. And this is important because you have to keep in mind that India's population is now 1.339 billion and is expected to cross the 1.4 billion mark by 2026, right? We're only talking about five years from now. Every demographer, including those in China, understands that India will certainly surpass China numbers within the next decade. This is actually by 2027, according to both the UN and the U.S. Census IDB, the international, the U.S. international database. If indeed uh, China hasn't already surpassed it, so you have you have a few minority voices saying that. So China's population itself is due to peak and start falling before 2030, right? So India surpassing it, and then China itself beginning to show virtually no growth just before 2030 and, and then starting to peak and decline again. Every PRC official understands this is a sensitive issue. According to uh, the quoted uh, NBS, again, National Bureau of Statistics, flax, the blow to China's numero uno self-image will require, and, and they, they quote here, careful preparation and, quote, close attention to public reaction. Well, I think, I think you can imagine why. China has been the most populous country on earth for longer than Christianity has been around. <laughs> it probably <laughs> since as early as 221 BCE, when the first emperor of Qin that's uh, Qing Shi Wang, conquered the other warring states to establish a unified empire. So a lot's at stake. The last time China actually suffered a one-year population decline was during the disastrous Great Leap Forward famine, starting in 1960, 61, 62, which the government is understandably loath to discuss. That's um, I don't think it's it's not one of the three T's, right? Tiananmen <laughs> right. Square, Tibet, you know, but it's right up there. I think that's probably also a uh, I don't know I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, taboo. The, yeah, the, it's the unmentionable G, right? Greatly forward. <laughs> anyway, at his next party plenum, 
President Xi Jinping won't be eager to announce that China must decelebrate its passing of $1.4 billion, and I'm sure he doesn't relish the prospect that it will be under his watch that the Middle Kingdom must fall below the first rung for the first time since the mighty Qin. Think about that. I mean, under your, I mean, think about it. over 2000 years and, and suddenly, you know, this, this, again, you have to say it kind of a loss of face anyway. So that's, what's going on. Now, the background is this, and just, this is where we kind of go underneath a little bit and talk real about real demography. And that is that uh, China, like most countries of the world today, follows the example uh, first set by the United States back in 1790, according to its new constitution. We like to think of the United States as a as a as a young country, right? But politically, we're one of the oldest <laughs> political entities. Is still is still in operation, right? Um, how many countries have a uh, an unbroken government going back to the late 18th century? Anyway. As we all know, in in the new constitution, uh, you know, ratified just before 1789, uh, we conduct a census of the national population every 10 years. And almost every country has followed suit. Uh, There are a few like Japan and Canada. They follow the Roman example and they do it every five years. So China, as so many things, you know, they followed the U.S. example. But this, by the way, is something people don't realize. And (laughs) China's animosity toward the West and toward the United States in particular, I think, has to do with the fact that in so many ways they emulate the United States, right? And that makes the the anxiety and the frustration uh, doubly painful, right? I mean, just think about it. They, you know, China has a CDC. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because we have a CDC, right? I mean, you know, just all of these things, right? So anyway, they do this ten-year census. So they did their first census in 1953, right after the founding, uh, and they've done one about every even-numbered year ever since. Uh, so the 2020 census will be their seventh. Now, remember, census in theory requires an actual enumeration of people living in every household, and this usually makes it the best available measure of the actual national population on the census date. So you might be asking, though, well, if you do a census once every 10 years. So what about the other years? <laughs> how do we know? How do we know what's happening, you know, between all those 10 years? Well, typically countries will make estimates uh, based on other official numbers like births and death records or, you know, surveys of randomly selected households. These are always less accurate than the decennial census, right? So every time a new census is conducted, we revise the you know, the prior nine years, upward or down years to fit the new decade ending landmark. So this is what everyone's going to be doing, by the way, you know, this year and next as this, the results of the new census comes in. So now you have to ask, how reliable is this whole process for China as compared to other countries? And I think the consensus is China's official demographic numbers are problematic. And I think there's a lot of reasons, many of them familiar of anyone dealing with statistics from China. Like so many other official statistical agencies in China, the NBS suffers from inadequate transparency. Uh, neither its sources nor its methods are fully made public. And when outside demographers raise questions or problems, the NBS uh, often offers no response. And some higher officials may question the demographer's patriotism. 
Uh, that does happen. Uh, we've had a lot of contact. I've worked with some of them over the years. I've, I've been to China a couple of times uh, to actually talk with demographers there. The the NBS's results may themselves be effectually overruled by other more powerful agencies in determining China's official number. And as a result, even Chinese agencies may sometimes cite very different numbers for population or mortality. For the really politically sensitive ones, they try to make sure everyone's on the same on the same page. So, okay, so let's now divide it up into decennial results and these annual estimates. The decennial results are widely regarded as credible uh, simply because it's, you know, what are the numbers you're going to believe? Uh, some people do attack them, and I'll mention a couple here. There is uh, a Shalendra Raj Mehta, who was the director of India's MICA Institute, and he's among those who claim that China's decennial census, censuses are not internally consistent. And he observes, for example, that the number in an age bracket in one census does not reliably track the number in the 10-year-older age bracket in the next census, right? And particularly when you don't have much immigration, like census, they should track. I mean, other than a, a mortality adjustment factor, those your 10-year-olds in one census should match the number of 20-year-olds in your next <laughs> census. Uh, and at that age, not many are actually dying, right? So in his opinion, China is trying to overestimate its population. I think a lot of, and that, this is what gives this whole claim, right, some plausibility. A bit more extreme and notorious and much publicized are the views of Yi Fuxian, this is the um, uh, professor of reproductive health and endocrinology at University of Wisconsin at Madison. Yi actually grew up in China. He left China in 1999, still actively counsels women in China who want to escape forced abortions. It's probably not so much of a problem now, uh, but it certainly used to be. He believes that the CCP knowingly inflates official population totals in order to justify the authoritarian family planning bureaucracy and to assure the public of, of China's future prospects. Now, his his opinions are way out there. Uh, this is definitely a small minority view, but he estimates that China's actual population is smaller than 1.4 billion by as much as 140 million. So that would mean what? You know, 1. Wow, 140 million. So I guess that would be 1.26 Right. Yeah, that's a big miss. <laughs> I think you could say. Uh, yeah, it's hard to ha miss 140 million people. He also says that China's population is already declining. He has said recently that India may have already surpassed China in numbers, and most provocatively of all, he has said that China's economy will never surpass that of the U.S. He is he has a large following in China. He has 140,000 uh, uh, Weibo followers. And, and after, you know, China, after first banning his books, China now allows him to return. And he, he routinely lectures at demography gatherings on the mainland. So those are the views on the decennial estimates. The real controversy, though, has to do with their intra-decennial estimates. And I, I think questions could be raised about both of them. And there's a lot, much larger number of critics here. It's believed that the NBS faces an underreporting of the, in the official death count. You know, people, compliance in China is a lot worse <laughs> than Westerners think. And I come across this a lot. Having been to China, having talked to people, I come back in, in, in the United States, and we all think, oh, well, my God, you know, China, it's got this, um, you know, one-party government. I mean, everyone must follow the rules. No. 
tax compliance in China is terrible. And no one follows what the bureaucrats are saying. You've got all these different layers of provincial governments. And, you know, the emperor, he's way far away. I mean, who's watching, right? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of chaos there. And there's widely assumed to be actually very poor compliance with things, for instance, like registering deaths. More importantly is the fact that it faces an under-registration of births. And this must have because, and this particularly when uh, the one-child policy was in full gear, mothers don't want to face penalties uh, for births above the limit or attract other forms of unwanted attention from huku authorities. The hukus are the, you know, the, the, the local provincial governments which, which track you all your life. You're, you're always a member of your huku no matter where you go. Uh, right. And and uh, this is obviously a problem for people from uh, rural hookahs and, you know, want to work in cities. They're basically stripped of benefits. And this is a well-known is a well-known issue in China. So because these two problems work in opposite directions, undercounting deaths, undercounting births, no one knows what the net effect is. Because they're recognized, the NBS introduces various fudge factors based on earlier decennial censuses. For instance, since we know that people are reporting births, they kind of just shift up all the births, you know, <laughs> just sort of, you know, extra little, you know, fight. well, because we know from earlier decennial censuses, right, when you really could count people. Um, and the way they count them, actually, is, is exactly that way. So the statisticians typically wait until newborns reach age seven or nine, and then they compare these known counts of kids, you know, say by looking at schools with registered birth numbers seven or nine years earlier, right? And then you kind of, hmm, you know, it looks like we're undercounting by about 15%, right? <laughs> so, so you say, okay, well, now we, when you get a reported birth number, we'll just add another 15%. So you can imagine how that works. Or better, they take the 10-year count in, the, in a decennial census and compare it to uh, registered births 10 years earlier. See how that works? So then you just right. try to match them. Of course, you know, um, unfortunately, this leads to correction factors that are hopelessly out of date, replete with uh, slippage. There have been many studies showing that all the expert people looking at, at fertility rates show just enormous variability. Uh, and we'll come back to that because actually I think that's the single biggest issue because the fertility rate is critical in looking not so much where China is right now, but where it's going, Right. So these, these issues aren't getting any better over time. And as a result, there's a large disagreement, even within China, about exactly how big the fertility, you know, what the fertility is. The Health and Family Planning Council, which runs the child limitation policies, they, favors, they favor higher reported births in order to maintain support for its mission, right? Because that means, oh, yeah, we're having plenty of births. You know, we still have to keep them in line, right? We, we have to make sure people aren't going to have too many kids. And it reports the party line that the total fertility rate is close to 1.8. Well, that's well above the UN and World Bank estimates, which are now at about 1.7. But until recently, the NBS continued to make available its unadjusted annual fertility microsurveys, where they go every year and actually interview women. And until all the surveys since uh, 2016 suddenly uh, disappeared from its website. Uh, <laughs> these unadjusted uh, data point to TFRs 
declining from about 1.4 15 years ago to about 1.0 uh, by 2018. Uh, something close to, you know, Yi's, you know, Yi Fushan, right? This is something close to his nightmare. So have low TFRs become politically unmentionable? Well, no. There's a growing number of Chinese demographers uh, who now favor TFR estimates well beneath the World Bank's. The PBOC. Okay, this is China's central bank. And this was uh, uh, got a lot of attention in a footnote in a recent paper conceded that China's TFR is probably between 1.0 and 1.5, and certainly below the official planning assumption of (laughs) 1.8. So that's the central bank, right? Here's another guy. Uh, This is uh, Civil Affairs Minister uh, Li Ziheng, who warned in a uh, recent publication that a dangerous drop in the birth rate imperils China's future. He talks about, you know, the the low fertility trap and uh, makes higher fertility a top national priority. Unlike the PBOC, Lee cites slightly adjusted NBS data, these microsurveys again, uh, pointing to a TFR hovering between 1.0 and 1.5, same TIM numbers in recent years, and showing no improving trend over time. So the bottom line is there's no unified PRC conspiracy to lie about China's population. There is, however, a somewhat untrusted decennial census and a very untrusted annual updating procedure and they've given rise to a wide diversity of views uh, within China about both the size and direction of the population. So what does this all mean? I think what it means is, is that people are going to look very closely at this new census to figure out what's going on. I think some of the tension may be the very accuracy of this new census, pointing out some of the problems with this updating procedure and probably forcing it to come to terms with the decline in its, its uh, fertility rate. And remember, again, I can't overstress how important this is for just the public image, the brand of China. There is a uh, Xi Jinping, one of his favorite mantras is the East is rising and the West is declining, right? <laughs> this is <laughs> triumphalist message. And, and the CCP officials are, you know, repeat this endlessly as the wisdom of Xi. Well, you know, <laughs> what if the East is declining? It doesn't look so good, right? And, and so that, that's what's at stake here. So we don't know what happened. And I'm going to go to my next article in, in just one second, because we're going to look now that we actually have some results in the census and see how that compares with with some of the very preliminary results we now have from the census. Well, one thing I did a week before these results came out is I, I basically said, what are we going to uh, estimate in terms of uh, actual births? Uh, what would we estimate, particularly given what we've already seen, the dec- this, these large declines in registered births, you know, in, in, in uh, 2019 and, and 2020? And I think we came out and said we estimate about 2.5 million fewer births. And I think overall, um, let's see where my estimate was on that. I think we're looking at something like 12 million births, right? And we're going to come right. back to those numbers in just a second. But what that would mean is a much slower growth rate. It would also almost necessarily imply that China's total population did not grow nearly as much over the past 10 years. And the the final census results, as we'll see in just a second, kind of show a little of both, and they show a little straddling there. 
you know, we're going to come back to that. But before we go there, let me just make me say what further confuses the 2020 results, of course, is COVID-19. So you know, just throw that in, in the census year itself. Right. So, you know, to be sure, China's total reported deaths from the pandemic in 2020, fewer than 5,000 deaths, no deaths since last April, um, is completely defies credulity, right? I, I don't think anyone believes that. Nor has the MBS offered any preliminary look at excess mortality in 2020, right? That's how we estimate this. You know, what, what are the total deaths in 2020? People are really eager to see that. Well, we, we even now we don't have that number yet. In a census, though, everyone alive has to be counted in every household, right? Uh, in this case, they do it as of the evening of October 31st, right? So you, you want to count everyone at one moment, right? And that's particularly how the Chinese census works. So, you know, even if it's on holiday, people are traveling, just bam, snapshot, right? So we're not going to double count you, right? Wherever you are right now. Uh, yeah, but I don't really live here. We don't care. <laughs> we're going to count you there. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You're just visiting your cousin. That's okay. But for right now, where is where I going to count you, right? So this is a problem. This is what makes it accurate. And this is what uh, uh, means it could contradict some of the trends. Anyway, now I want to go on and talk about what we actually found out, right? You know, after this came in, I believe this was early Tuesday morning, right? Where we got the right. final results that came out on Sunday, last Sunday, uh, China's State Council Information Office announced that MBS, uh, MBS will be releasing its top-line census results on Tuesday, and they did. And the new speculation emerged that, well, the delay had nothing to do with the aggregate population, but rather with disagreements over which provinces, you know, were counted as winning or losing. You can imagine COVID-19 really affect that as people are migrating back and forth between provinces, uh, which, you know, very well may be the case. So, what I did, and this was actually right before these final results came out, we actually, as you recall, Christian, we looked at the recent MBS totals for annual births. Now, these are based, obviously, on estimates from the 2010 census. And it's right. really interesting. They, you know, trundle along at about 16 million, and they rise just very slightly to 2015. They go way up to 18 million in 2016. Then they come back to about 17 in 2017, and then they've really been falling ever since. They fell down to only 15 million in 2019, and then they absolutely plummeted in 2020, right? And we made an estimate based on uh, the difference between uh, you know registered and, and, and actual final births, and we estimated 12.5. Well, guess what? The final result is in 12. So we actually overestimated. <laughs> We actually overestimated China's births in 2020. They're down further than we thought. And keep this in mind, by the way, this does not include much impact yet from COVID, right? Okay, right. yes, China had was hit by COVID about a month earlier than those of us in the in the West, you know, at most, you know, five weeks earlier, six weeks earlier for, you know, the areas around Wuhan, perhaps. Uh, but that still means that you only have about two months, right? You basically have November and December where you'd expect, you know, uh, pregnancies to actually result in births. Maybe for some areas, you know, the last week of October. So the big impact 
with COVID is actually going to be in 2021. Hence, back to that Global Times. You remember that story? Oh, yeah, well, there may be a little decline in, in 2021. I think that's where that comes from. So one of the things you can see here is this huge decline. And and, and actually, where are deaths? Well, deaths have been rising. China's a, uh, an aging society. So back in uh, 2010, deaths were about 9.5 million. Today, they're about 10 million. Okay, you got that? 10 million deaths okay. in 2020. 12.5. Well, now we know it's lower. It's 12 million births. 12 million being added. 10 million being subtracted by deaths. What does that lead you? 2 million, two right? Million, and if you if you <laughs> discount much immigration, which China's never claimed to have much, uh, you know, I don't know. They bring in brides and various things, you know, particularly from Cambodia and other places. But, and, you know, the net impact of immigration is not much. That's 2 million divided by roughly 1.4. What's that growth rate? That's that like... 0.14%, right? 0.14%. I mean, that is getting to be razor thin. I mean, we now think in the U.S., our population growth, we think of as being razor thin, and we're still at 0.6%, right? Um, even in a bad year, right? So, Neil, question for you yeah. real quick. Yeah. What about their working age population? Is that still growing? Oh, that's already been declining. I mean, that started okay. declining about five years ago or, or, yeah, five or six years ago. So that decline is going to steepen. And the reason it's declining is obvious, right? I mean, their younger cohorts, the cohorts born, you know, who are under age 65 are all the products of much lower fertility rates, right? And particularly the new ones coming into the workforce are much smaller, right? They're, they're certainly the result of, of much lower birth rates, like the United States, by the way. The United States also has the growth in the working age population, which is very close to zero. And keep in mind that we actually have the benefit of, um, you know, substantial net immigration, right? Right. Um, but, you know, and, and we're being hit by COVID. Obviously, we had certainly more COVID deaths relative to our population than China. I think it was fair to say, even if China certainly didn't count them all. And we also had much more of a negative impact on immigration, certainly in, in 2020. So that could be, yeah, it was, a, it was a very low year for us in terms of net population growth. But we're going to be up pretty positive again uh, in total population growth in the 2020s. However, increase in the working age population, we're going to be very, 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 very uh, slow rate uh, throughout the 20s. It's going to rise a little bit in the 2030s and 40s, as you actually begin to get actual children of millennials, right? So that'll be the echo, echo boom, right? So that's kind of where we are. I think, you know, right now we're going to be somewhere around, you know, 0.1, per year, and we'll grow a little bit. Uh, so we're not going negative uh, in terms of working age population like China, right? although we will be getting very close to it. So what are the, what are the implications for the total fertility rate? Well, when we look at Years that are only three or four years apart, the delta in the TFR will be roughly proportional to the delta in births. So the World Bank, you know, bless their hearts. I mean, along with all these other big international organizations, they've avoided any close examination of year-to-year -year birth changes in China. Look, I mean, the UN, same way. I mean, you can't, like, rework everything from scratch from these countries. You kind of have to accept roughly what they're saying, right? 
They simply assume that China's TFR has been slowly rising from about 1.63 in 2010 to around 1.70 in 2019. So interestingly, them assuming a slow rise in TFR. But if we do year-to-year changes, we can see that whatever China's TFR was in the early 2010s, it is only 75% of that level in 2020, just given the fall in births, right? So if we assume the World Bank was correct back in the early 2010s, right, post-GFC, and that China's TFR then was around 1.65, then in 2020, it was somewhere between 1.25 and 1.3. That's a dramatic descent. And when you're talking about that, you're talking about getting close to Japan levels, Singapore levels, Taiwan level. You know what I mean? You're, you're suddenly you're you're in the same ballpark, right? Right. And and by the way, maybe I should just uh, sort of stop the suspense. But they did issue a total fertility number, and it was 1.2. So again, we <laughs> overestimated uh, China's fertility. But at 1.2, uh, regardless of where they say their total population is right now, that means an exceedingly small growth rate. And it means they're very close to peaking in terms of total population. We'll we'll come back to that at the end in just one second. But the other thing we did in this piece, and again, for those of you who don't subscribe, you really should. We have got great graphics here. um, And I just say thanks to Christian here. He put these together. I mean, they they really look cool, Christian. We got both uh, annual births and population pyramids, a bunch of really great looking charts, which actually show the different uh, population waves in China's history. This is something called Sun Tzla. You know, hey, I told you we were going to, you know, get heavy duty with demography here. So (laughs) (laughs) Eilert Sunt was a Norwegian demographer. He did a lot of work in the 19th century. Uh, Scandinavia is great because they have official records going back a long, long time. And he was the one who discovered that when you get a birth boom, for whatever reason, you know, by chance, by famine, by, uh, you know, low price of grain or just whatever happens to go on, right? Even if nothing else happens, you get a big boom, you know, about 20 years later, right? Why? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, those kids then grow up and they themselves have kids, right? And so it, it's, right. A, it's an echo, 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 right? And gradually it fades out because people give birth to kids at different ages. And so it, it's a little bit like ripples on a pond. It, it gradually sort of dissipates, Right. But, but it's amazing the impact it can have. And when you look at Chinese history, you see, and the China themselves talk about it. They talk about their three waves. The first wave uh, was the founding wave, which was just after the foundation of the republic. It was in the early 50s. It was, uh, you know, between 20, 23 million births per year. By the way, that's a sign of how much uh, China's fertility rate is falling, right? China back then had had what? They only had about 600 million people. And yet they had a lot more births every year. They had over twice as many births, right? Over 20 million births with only 40% as many people. Anyway, you see That's where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had, they had a lot more births. Okay. Uh, they also, by the way, at that time had much higher infant mortality. So that took care of a lot of them. But even, even, even the kids who survived, um, there were just a lot more of them. Then you had the gigantic, you know, uh, uh, famine of the Great Leap Forward, and then you had 
that boom, the founding wave, giving their own baby boom, which went up again. And of course, you know, with uh, fertility rates as high as they were back then, that led to an even greater bulge uh, in the late 1960s, 1970s. This is the cultural revolution wave, right? So this is when everyone was screaming along with Mao and <laughs> and, and you, know, you got all these kids, you know, they're, they're actually getting rid of all the Confucian culture and and uh, you know, scrapping all the all the old and ancient Chinese stuff in the middle of villages. Okay, that's when they had this sudden other big wave, and that went up to about twenty-seven million a year. Okay, well then it went down again. Why? Well, because then you had all the parents, or the people of parent age, were the people who had been born during the uh, the Great Leap Forward. Not many of them. <laughs> a lot of them died, in fact, as little kids. Okay, so that was a big bust, right? But then the Cultural Revolution wave had their own kids. When did they have them? Count forward about 20 years. So you look now at the late 1980s, you know, beginning in the mid-1980s to the late 1980s, right up to about 1990. And that was kind of the Dang wave, right? I mean, think about that. That was sort of your Dang Xiaoping, right? That was his wave. That was the new wave when China was suddenly beginning to accelerate in terms of its economic growth rate. That leads to a question, Christian. Where's the fourth wave? I mean, that was 25 million a year, right? After the uh, the bust, uh, 25 million right. a year. And that would have been much larger. That might have been up to 40 million had not they introduced in 1980 the one-child family policy, right? So suddenly now that was squeezed. Right. But even if you squeeze it down, it still could be relatively larger, right? So it went up again to about uh, 25, 26 million at its peak. And then it's steadily come down, 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 down. Right? As we said, it was only about uh, 15 million by 2005. And it went on and on and on and on. And where's, it? where's the fourth wave? <laughs> How about the dang wave? Well, you know, when do they get up? Well, think about it. The dang wave are having their kids later, right? So instead of looking for 20 years later, maybe we should look at 25, 26 years later. Okay, 1990, count 26 years later, where you got 2016. 2016, and we did have a little boomlet, right? I think we just talked about it. Everyone right. attributed that to the uh, dismantling of one-child policy. But here's an interesting concept, right? Maybe it really didn't have to do with one-child policy. Maybe it was just a faint and a delayed fourth echo or fourth wave parented by the large cohort of dang generation parents, right? Right. So that's an aspect which I think has not been sufficiently paid attention to. But here's the, here's the killer. Just ahead for the next 10 or 15 years, a much smaller baby bus cohort born during the 1990s and 2000s will be reaching the age of parenthood. And as they do, the birth numbers will plummet, guarantee you. Even with the same total fertility rate, the birth numbers will come in because there are just no parents of that age, right? We actually show this, and I really like this uh, last chart you did on the population pyramid, which actually shows 2030, and you see a much smaller uh, cohort of infants, right, uh, between zero and four. So people are born in the late 2020s, much smaller, we're now predicting that whatever was being born in the 2020s, you can now see, and this, by the way, we just drew our chart from the U.S. Census IBD 
Uh, but they expect this age bracket in China, that is to say the zero to four-year-olds, to comprise 64 million children in 2030. That's down from 76.5 million in the same age bracket in 2021. Think about that. Wow. Nine years go by, and it falls from 76.5 to 64. Equivalently, that translates into 2.5 million fewer births every day by 2030 than in 2021. And in fact, that's an average. So it's like every year along the way as well. It might even be larger, right, by the time you get to 2030. So you begin to see where we're going here. Not only is the births down and the fertility numbers down, but if you then superimpose this fertility rate on, and let's discount 2021, like they see even lower fertility, right, right, because of COVID. But let's assume that it kind of goes down even further, right? And then it kind of jumps back a little bit up, you know, post-COVID. Forget about that. I'm just saying that the fact that you have so many fewer people of parent age means the same TFR is going to generate many fewer, many fewer births. And that will tip China into negative population growth. All right. Now, in terms of what did the census, uh, new census actually predict? I think it's a doctored number. They can't doctor the birth numbers uh, because they're too reliant on those. The actual number came out was, what was it? It was 1.401, something like that. Right. Or 1.4, no, 1.41, but it was probably just rounded up. So they probably rounded up. It's probably 1.046 or something like that, right? So that was a slight increase over what they already announced for um, for 2019. And I think that that was just, they had to do it. I don't think they could possibly, I think they just adjusted the whole you know, they had another fudge factor for the whole population. Just say, oh, well, you know, and, and everyone has to do that. You know, here and there along the way, you always, there's little undercounts for things that you confirm. I mean, anyway, it deals with numbers and huge spreadsheets and models. You realize <laughs> there are a million ways of, you know, um, cooking the data slightly. And I think that's what they did because it there's virtually no difference from what they had already said they were going to be at 2019, even the United States. And I think everyone agrees that we have a much more accurate reporting program. I had a larger shift, right, between the actual updated estimate for 2020 based on the 2010 census, uh, 2010 census, and the actual result of the 2020 census, right? And proportionally, it was maybe three times as large. So how did China end up with no adjustment at all? So I think it was, anyway, a doctored number. And I will say one other thing. And, you know, gosh, yeah, we've, we've, um, we really did take off our, we put on <laughs> our work boots, didn't we? Uh, we but unplugged. Yeah, we unplugged here. Uh, maybe <laughs> sometimes I fear for this. This is Meng Chao Wang, uh, or I guess it's, I assume he's Wang Meng Chao, right? But anyway, <laughs> you know, surname, I'm assuming Wang is a surname. Anyway, of Sichuan University recently recomputed the annual fertility mini surveys of the MBS conducted for 2016 through 2028. Remember, I said the MBS uh, conveniently lost them. Well, he was actually able to recompute them using very clever statistical algorithm, and he published them in a paper. Uh, I'm not sure people were 
NBS was happy about that, but he did that. Um, <laughs> and he found that these mini surveys continue to point to an annual TFR of between 1.0 and 1.1. Now, I'm not saying that there's no underreporting of births. Uh, there is. So I, I think, you know, he, he's not, and he's not claiming that that means the TFR is down there. But it means that he says, he says that you have to take this data seriously. But he also discovered something else. He discovered a reason why underreporting may not be as serious a problem as it once was. And that's this. This is actually fascinating. Uh, and he has wonderful tables in here. Again, we reproduce this. <laughs> Do I sound like a shill now for demography? <laughs> like, you know, go ahead and subscribe. But apparently, according to these mini surveys, nearly all the decline in the TFR in China over the past 15 years has been due to a decline in the rate at which women are giving birth to a first child. There's been little or no decline at the rate which they're having a second child, you know, after they have a first or a third after they have a second, right? And obviously that's not very often. So that's fascinating to me. And and you can just see that. So he, and he also saw there was a slight rise at the rate in which women report giving birth to a second child, very small. And arguably this increase is evidence that the impact of the new a two-child policy, right? It may be that more women feel they're now free to have a second child, or after having had one, they feel freer to report it. Maybe, maybe that's more to the point. But the steady decline in the rate at which women are giving birth to the first children does even more to under, uh, undermine the underreporting assumption, because after all, there's never been any legal barriers to a woman having a first child, Right. Now, so long as you're married, that's another problem, right? Which they have to deal with. If you're not married, yeah, then you do actually face problems. And that's another uh, problem that women in China are complaining about. But there are no problems with as long as you find some way to legally get married or, or have legal marriage status. Yet these are the births that have been sinking the most. You get the problem? These births have been sinking the most. And why are children experiencing the steepest declines? Well, as I've said so many years probably for the same reasons why first children are declining in Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Japan, <laughs> South Korea, everyone else around there. I mean, especially in growing urban centers, young women are less attracted to marriage. Uh, 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 marriage and therefore childbearing is happening at older ages. Two-income families have become the norm. The cost of raising children seems unaffordable. I mean, you know, you just go on and on through all these reasons, right? Um, and Wang also observes that the rapid decline in first births throws doubt on the efficacy of any further loosening of child limits. And that, I think, is the most profound point of all. Because after all, if the growing challenge is women's unwilling to have first births, liberalizing restrictions on higher order births is kind of beside the point, right? Right. So high-ranking Chinese officials seem to be leaning, by the way, toward further liberalization. And according to one suggestion recently floated by the vice governor of Liaoning province, that's one of China's three Manchuria, Manchurian provinces, that these three provinces ought to be the first to lift national family restrictions entirely. This suggestion, I think, is likely to be approved fairly soon. And by the way, these three Manchurian provinces, they have negative uh, natural rates of natural increase. In other words, they already have uh, more deaths and births. Uh, you know, this is these heavy manufacturing districts up in the north. 
a lot of them are being closed down, uh, high unemployment, uh, not doing well economically. It won't be long, I think, before the entire nation follows suit, especially if China's top leaders are galvanized by these new fertility estimates, right? But here's the deal. If Wang is correct, getting rid of current family limits, even if they got rid of them all, <laughs> is not nearly enough to reverse China's declining fertility trend, right? To have even a prayer of success, the PRC is going to have to completely reverse gears. It will have to shift overnight from punitive antinatalism, which is what it now practices, to generous pronatalism, from throwing obstacles in the way of births to actively encouraging and subsidizing births. And as we have seen throughout much of the rest of Asia, even that reversal may not move the needle very much. I mean, you know, look at look at Japan, look at Singapore, look at all these countries. You know, they're actively pro-natalist, right? And how much do they get? Uh, how much bang do they get from their buck? So if that happens, you know, you could see China completely reversing their policy, still not having a much impact. And at that point, China may be asking itself, why did we wait so long? Right. In fact, we wrote a piece, I think, about uh, what, several months ago. <laughs> I think this is actually might have been a couple of years ago. It was actually uh, one of our pieces in response to the uh, you know 2016 shift, sort of liberalizing the, the two child family. And I think that our headline to that piece was China embraces pronatalism decades too late. <laughs> so <laughs> that was uh, that was our assessment of that. That China, I don't know, what do you think, Christian? Do you think China is just saving face on this? I do think that they, they're very pragmatic. They do respond, right? They sometimes are very slow. They're hidebound. I think this uh, family planning bureaucracy is part of the whole sort of moralistic kind of Confucian establishment, which really represents, you know, a, a big power base within China that it's very hard for them to dismantle. Uh, right. But I do, but I do think they're going to have to dismantle it rapidly and move again in a completely different direction. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that probably them coming out with these population estimates, you know, just bought them some more time to plan what their long-term strategy is going to be. Yeah, I agree with that. And so the numbers, you know, they're relieved that came up with a new number that still shows growth, although almost no, no it still shows growth overall, but almost no incremental growth per year. So they're right. still facing, you know, imminent decline, and they're still facing even an earlier uh, eclipse by India. But anyway, that's where we are. Once again, we did not get to our um, our last story, but we'll do it. Uh, you know, we'll do it next time. Uh, it's actually an interesting thought piece. I don't know. It was uh, it was a little bit different style than I usually do, but it's all on. Uh, why we're not likely to have another Roaring Twenties. I mean, think about it, right? The pandemic is over, just like the Spanish flu, right? Time for a time for a Roaring Twenties. That's not going to happen. Although I noticed that in some business magazines, people are talking about it. And the reason it's not going to happen is because of the collective pure personality of the relative generations at different ages today. So that'll be a very different kind of uh, think piece. It could be a little bit more generational, maybe a little less demographic, but we're going to go through that one. So that's it. Again, thanks for listening to this episode of Demography Unplugged. Stay tuned. Uh, if all goes well, as I hope it does, we'll be talking to you again in another two weeks. 
Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com, or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration, that's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.